Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thank you for joining us for the special edition podcast on COVID-19. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen as we share the latest on COVID-19 with our resident experts. My name is Vicki Basilea, and I'm the director of the section of clinical specialists and scientists here at SHP, and I'll be your host. Today, we'll be chatting with Serene Hadar, clinical pharmacogenetics coordinator at St. Jude's Research Hospital, and Kelly Cottle, CPIC co-PI and director of St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital. And we're going to be talking to them today about pharmacogenomics. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So currently, there's no specific guidance on pharmacogenomics considerations, specifically in the management of COVID-19. Well, that doesn't mean that pharmacogenomics cannot play an important part in managing patients with COVID-19. For the uninitiated, the Clinical Pharmacogenomics Implementation Consortium, or CPIC for short, is an international consortium of individual volunteers and a dedicated small staff who are interested in facilitating the use of pharmacogenomic tests for patient care. CPIC's goal is to address the barrier in translating genetic laboratory tests into actual prescribing decisions for affected drugs. They do this by curating and posting freely available, peer-reviewed, evidence-based, updatable, and detailed gene drug clinical practice guidelines. CPIC guidelines follow the standardized format, including systemic grading of evidence and clinical recommendations, use of standardized terminology, are peer-reviewed and published in a leading journal with simultaneous posting to cpic.org, which is where they are regularly updated. Today, we're going to be talking about some of those guidelines through the lens of COVID-19 and how to use the guidelines in your practice. So, Serene, let's talk a little bit about succinylcholine. So, to facilitate endotracheal intubation and provide skeletal muscle relaxation during surgery or mechanical ventilation, the Food and Drug Administration recently approved the use of succinylcholine chloride for tracheal intubation, surgery, or ventilation facilitation. CPIC currently has guidelines for the use of potent volatile anesthetic agents and succinylcholine in the context of RYR1 or CA, CNA, 1S genotypes. Can you tell us a little bit about why pharmacists should be familiar with this test, including the implications for phenotypic measures and dosing recommendations? Why should pharmacists consider recommending this test for these genotypes? So, Vicky, um, succinylcholine and uh, other fluorinated and held anesthetics such as sevoflurane can cause a condition called, known as malignant hyperthermia in patients who are genetically predisposed to developing malignant hyperthermia. So, malignant hyperthermia itself is, a, is considered a medical emergency. Its signs and symptoms include uh, hyperthermia as well as prolonged muscle contraction. This prolonged muscle contraction can lead to uh, increased oxygen O2 requirements, increased CO2 production, which leads to tachycardia, arrhythmia, hyperthermia, rhabdomyolysis, and even death. So it's important for us as pharmacists to know that there are certain genetic conditions that can predispose patients to developing malignant hyperthermia when they are exposed to certain medications. Although I said that malignant hyperthermia itself is fatal, if it is, if it is determined that the patient does have malignant hyperthermia early enough, Dantrolene is currently the only antidote that is available to reverse malignant hyperthermia conditions. So pharmacists should be aware of this, these two genotypes for RYR1 and CACNA1S because of the fact that there are 
medications that we should avoid, including succinylcholine, in patients who may be genetically predisposed to developing malignant hyperthermia. And there are many other alternatives that can be used for intubation, such as vecuronium or rocuronium, and they can be used as alternative agents. As you stated, there are CPEG guidelines for the two genes of CACNA1S and malignant hyperthermia in patients who uh, CACNA1S and RYR1 in patients who may be genetically predisposed to developing these toxicities when exposed to either succinylcholine or inhaled anesthetics. It's important to note that identifying these patients by genetic risk factors is one of the key ways to determine how patients may, whether a patient may develop malignant hyperthermia. Another essential component is obtaining a family or, and personal history of the patients to ask them whether they personally or know of family members who have had uh, malignant hyperthermia or fever after they have been exposed to inhaled anesthetics or succinylcholine to prevent this from happening in susceptible patients. In the setting that you just discussed of patients being intubated and receiving succinylcholine, it's, it may be hard to get to know the patient's RYR1 and to obtain the result of RYR1 and CACNA1S before uh, a patient is given succinylcholine. So in cases like that, it is important to get a thorough family and personal history of response for tolerance of anesthesia in these family members as well as the patients. And if you know the patient's RYR1 and CACNA1S genotype before that happens, uh, it's always good to also ask the patients whether they have been genetically tested for that. Thanks so much, Serene. Um, one of the other big areas that we've been seeing in COVID-19 is um, patients with coagulopathies that have required anticoagulation after discharge. While anticoagulation therapy approaches would be patient-specific, most or some may be likely treated with warfarin. Most recently updated in 2016, the CPIC guidelines for pharmacogenetic guided warfarin dosing provide information on four gene drug pairs that pharmacists should consider when treating patients on warfarin. Serene, can you briefly review how a pharmacist should screen a patient to determine if they would recommend this pharmacogenomic testing? And Kelly, can you also describe the approach to dosing should a patient possess a specific genotype where dose changes are necessary? So sure. So a person's initial warfarin dose is dependent on many factors, such as drug interactions, the patient's smoking status, as well as the patient's pharmacogenomic profile. If a patient has never received warfarin, pharmacogenomic testing for warfarin is available and would be warranted to start uh, to, uh, to obtain, especially that the starting dose of warfarin is dictated by two or three genes that would be important for patients. The first two are VCOR-C1 and CYP2C9, and patients of African-American descent, CYP4F2 is also an important pharmacogene to determine the starting dose of warfarin. So there are a couple of algorithms that are helpful uh, for plugging in the patient's pharmacogenetic status and helping and aiding in determining what should be the starting dose of warfarin. I'll let Kelly talk about them a little bit more. But my recommendation would be if you're in an institution that can provide either point-of-care warfarin genotyping or if you're in an institution that would provide you with um, pharmacogenomic results for warfarin genotyping within 24 hours, it is definitely recommended to genotype the patients before starting them on warfarin. 
Yeah, yeah, thanks, Lorraine. Um, so I think I'm going to kind of walk through um, the CPIC guideline for this. So I think what has already been stated is that CPIC had published a guideline in, in 2016 regarding the use of pharmacogenetics guided uh, warfarin dosing. And so the guideline, and, and just to, for you to remember that this is a guideline update to the 2011 guideline. Um, so this is one of our older guidelines, um, but we certainly saw the need to update this guideline um, back in 2015-16 based on the fact that we knew that there was additional alleles that we needed to add to our, our recommendation that we already had. Um, and so now the new guideline recommendation does include three genes. It's CYP2C9, VCOR C1, and CYP4F2, but there's also guidance on one variant in a CYP2C cluster that's um, been associated with a clinically relevant effect of warfarin dose through alterations in warfarin clearance, and this is independent of CYP2C9. And so um, the guideline recommendations are, are derived from numerous observational and perspective studies, um, also randomized trials that suggest the ability to more accurately identify stable therapeutic warfarin dose requirements um, through the use of just not only the genetic information that we've been discussing, but also, of course, using clinical information as well. Um, and so really prior to the guideline, there had already been numerous studies, um, had already derived the, the dosing algorithms that Serene's already discussed. Um, but these dosing algorithms use not only genetic, but also non-genetic factors. And I'm trying to think, I think there's like age included, sex, race, weight, height, smoking status, warfarin indication, target INR, and, and I think, of course, drug interactions are all included in this one algorithm. Um, and there are two algorithms, the GAGE and the IWPC algorithms, and these both perform quite well in estimating stable warfarin doses. Um, but what's important to remember is that it's really only been shown to really be able to estimate warfarin dose in individuals of non-African ancestry. And so the GAGE algorithm, um, if you wanted to look it up, you can find it online. It's at warfarin dosing.org and you just plug in genetic and non-genetic patient information and it will calculate out a, a loading um, and a maintenance dose. And so the guideline recommends that, that you do use these warfarin um, dosing algorithms. But as I mentioned, um, it is really important to note these algorithms do not include certain alleles such as CYP2C9, STAR8, and STAR11, and also that additional variant rs 12 Seven 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 eight two three. Yes, I read that. Um, which are most common in individuals of African ancestry, and so if you do have this information, it's really important to incorporate those into the, the results that are available, regardless of ancestry. But in fact, the, the CPIC guidelines recommend that if a patient is of African ancestry and you do not have genetic test results. For these variants that are more common, um, CYP2C9, STAR5, STAR6, STAR8, and STAR11, it is, it's really best to dose them clinically without consideration for genotype. And so what the CPIC guideline does is it takes the existing algorithms and builds in these additional alleles um, so that you can further decrease or adjust the dose based on these additional alleles that are not included in the algorithms. And so if I've completely confused you, that's fine. CPIC guidelines are available freely online, and you can go to CPIC, uh, so C-P-I-C-P-G-X.org, and you can find a list of all of our guidelines there. Uh, for our listeners as well, um, ASHP is one of the organizations that endorses yes. these guidelines, so you can also find a link to the uh, CPIC uh, website on the ASHP website as well. There's been a lot of discussion about the utility of hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine as a treatment modality in patients with COVID-19. CPIC currently has a guideline for G6PD. 
Kelly, are there concerns about using hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine in patients who are G6PD deficient? Can you briefly review whether patients should be screened for G6PD deficiency before administration of hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine? Yes, yeah, so I'd like to start by saying I'm not certain of the usefulness of, of using hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine in patients with COVID, um, but I think it's out there, and I think people are, are likely going to use and use it even regardless of what the evidence status is. But to my knowledge, there really are no currently data that really support the necessity for G6P deficiency screening before starting normal doses of hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine. Um, there was a recent retrospective study that really that showed no correlation between hydroxychloroquine use and hemolysis in patients with um, G6P deficiency, and I think these patients also had uh, rheumatic disease. Um, but you know, I think it's important for it to always be in the back of the clinician's head. So, of course, a rapid drop of hemoglobin should really warn a physician. Um, and, of course, uh, hemolysis should be aggressively assessed at that point. So, I think, um, no, I don't think it's necessary to test, but it should certainly be in the kind of the back of your head if you are going to use these drugs. Sure, sure. Um, so, one of the other things that we've been hearing a lot from our ICU colleagues is and management of pain and sedation in the hospital. So um, as we see more pharmacists being asked to help out with the management of pain in hospitalized patients with COVID-19, and due to the ongoing shortages with many opioid formulations, pharmacists are having to change the therapy of patients who might be treated for pain. Most recently updated in 2014, the CFIT guidelines for CYP2D6 guided codeine therapy also provides recommendations for tramadol dosing. Serene, could you describe the approach to dosing a patient should they possess a CYP2D6 genotype when dosing changes are necessary? Uh, and what other pain medications are affected by polymorphisms in the CYP2D6 gene? And then Kelly, could you follow up that with, are there any other guidances regarding the use of pharmacogenomes for dosing for other pain medications? Sure. So I'll start, and you're right, we have been dealing so much, uh, Vicky, with result with because of the opioid epidemic and now the COVID-19 pandemic, we have been dealing with drug shortages, including uh, intravenous opioids. So we're being asked a lot as pharmacists to come up with recommendations for switching IV narcotic therapy or oral therapies based on what is available at our sites. So you specifically mentioned tramadol. So tramadol is a prodrug, actually, that is activated by CYP2D6. So patients who have little to no active CYP2D6 enzymes are called CYP2D6 poor metabolizers, and these patients cannot activate tramadol. So when they receive the drug and when it is prescribed to them, they will not have any analgesic benefit from that medicine. On the opposite side, there are certain patients who have inherited a more active CYP2D6 enzyme, and they're termed, they're categorized in a group called CYP2D6 ultra-rapid metabolizers. In these cases, more tramadol is activated, although it may probably result in a little bit more analgesia, this increased CYP2D6 metabolizer status has been associated with increased side effects such as respiratory depression, and that can be fatal. And there are reports in the literature of CYP2D6 ultra-rapid metabolizers who received therapeutic doses of tramadol and have resulted in fatalities because of the fact that the 2D6 genotype was not checked. So in both cases, uh, for patients who are CYP2D6 ultra-rapid and poor metabolizers, the recommendation would be not to use tramadol 
And it would be to prescribe an alternative agent. And the 2014 CPIG guideline at this time recommends alternative agents that are not metabolized by CYP2D6, two examples of which are morphine and hydromorphone. The best way to prevent these side effects and lack of effectiveness in giving tramadol and other opioids that I'll discuss in a second is to know a patient's CYP2D6 genotype prior to prescribing tramadol. So it's important, in my opinion, to know before prescribing any medicine that especially has to be activated by an enzyme to know whether the patient has inherited active or inactive versions of that enzyme. And in this case, for tramadol, it's for CYP2D6. Now, there are other pain medicines that are affected by CYP2D6. The, CYP, the CPIG guideline that was published in 2014 related to CYP2D6 and pain medicine was, is related to codeine. And codeine's relationship with tramadol with CYP2D6 is similar to that of tramadol in the sense that codeine is a prodrug that is activated by CYP2D6. So again, patients who are poor metabolizers of CYP2D6 will not get any analgesic benefits from codeine, but if they are ultra-rapid metabolizer, these patients can get a lot of toxicities and it can be fatal because they get more codeine that is converted to its active metabolite that is morphine, and the patients end up having respiratory depressions and increased other side effects too, but that, that can be fatal. The recommendation also per the CPIG guideline would be to use an agent that is not metabolized by CYP2D6. And note that possibly there's maybe a relationship between CYP2D6 with hydrocodone and oxycodone. This guideline currently, it's six years old. It is in the process of being updated. So stay tuned for a little bit more for more. And, um, and we'll get, there'll be an update soon for the opioid guideline with CYP2D6. Like you mentioned, Vicky, there are other medicines, uh, pain medicines, that have pharmacogenetic guidance, and I'm going to let Kelly take over for that. Yeah, okay, thank you. Um, so I think um, if you've been paying attention to the media, I think back in March there was a bit of media releases about the use of NSAIDs, like IB, even ibuprofen, um, to treat COVID. I think in, in March the FDA provided a statement regarding the use of NSAIDs for treatment of COVID-19, stating that they were aware of new, these news reports stating the use of NSAIDs could worsen coronavirus disease. Um, but at the time, I think even the FDA were not really aware of any scientific evidence connecting the use of NSAIDs with worsening uh, COVID symptoms. But of course, they were investigating the issue and, and they said they would communicate publicly when more information is available. Also in April of this year, the WHO also reported there is really no evidence of severe adverse events, acute health care utilization, long-term survival, or quality of life in patients um, with COVID-19 as a result of the use of NSAIDs. So I, I do think um, at this time NSAIDs could and, and are likely being used to treat symptoms of COVID, especially ibuprofen, as this is an over-counter medication. Um, and CPIC um, just published a guideline for the use of CYP2C9 genotype to, to guide the use of NSAIDs. There's three different recommendation tables in this, mostly because they're the, the, the NSAIDs are you have the shorter acting NSAIDs, kind of medium acting uh, NSAIDs, and then you have your longer acting NSAIDs. And so the the recommendations are a little different depending on the half life of these drugs. Um, but it does include recommendations for CYP2C9, for uh, celecoxib, fluorbuprofen, lornoxicam, ibuprofen. Profen, meloxicam, paroxicam, and tenoxicam. Not all these, I don't think all of these are used in the U.S., but they certainly are in other parts of the world. 
So if you're interested in looking at this guideline, um, you can go back to the CPIC website, cpicpgx.org. And of course, as Vicki mentioned, there's also a link from the ASHP website as well. So Kelly, um, are there other therapies that pharmacists should be aware of that are impacted by pharmacogenomics that might be used in a patient with COVID-19? Uh, yes. Yeah, so I, the one that comes to mind, I think one of the one of the symptoms of COVID is nausea and vomiting. And so um, there are there, there's a guideline for CYP2D6 and the use of Vondansetron. So again, something you might want to keep in the back of your your head if it's not Vondansetron's not working, it might be CYP2D6 related. And so these and, and as I said, these could be used to treat COVID related symptoms. So it may be another one you might want to be aware of. Thanks so much. So some of the things I've been asking my guests on, on these COVID-specific podcasts is, as we know, this is an incredibly stressful time. So I'm curious to know what the two of you are doing to maintain your well-being and resilience. I've been exercising more and making it a point to wake up before all my family to have a little bit of time to myself and some quiet time. <laughs> I think this has helped me. <laughs> Yeah, I think um, we, we got really lucky. We, Serena and I actually are both in, in Memphis, Tennessee, and we, we go from a really cold, like, you know, medium cold winter almost to summer overnight, but we were really blessed this year to have a beautiful spring. And from March until about a week or two ago, we just had gorgeous weather. And, you know, being at home and working from home allowed, I think, us to go outside more and sit outside, watch. My daughter learned how to ride her bike, you know, without training wheels. So I think um, for me, it was getting outside, getting some fresh air and spending time with my family that really is still pushing me through this. Of course, now it's, you know, 100 plus degrees here. So we're staying in the pool mostly, but um, certainly it's something getting outside. And, and I hope and I do hope that continues, you know, for for years to come that we we're now in a new normal where we're going to spend a bit more time outside. I stepped outside this morning and I asked Alexa, I was like, Alexa, what's the humidity? She's like, it's 95%. I'm like, nope, nope. it's conditioning <laughs> on. <laughs> yes, we understand that. <laughs> so as we know, COVID, uh, the way to avoid the spread of COVID-19 is to wash your hands for 20 seconds. So one of the things I've been asking my guests as well is what is your favorite song to wash your hands to? So I'm just curious. Well, I sing a song that my kids were taught at daycare about how to wash their hands as they're washing their hands, but I won't sing that to you. Right <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm so boring. I think I just count to 20, but honestly, I'm always, my daughter is really into the Annie soundtrack right now. So, you know, tomorrow or it's a hard knock life, you know, yeah, those probably are in my mind most of the time. So it's, it's possible. <laughs> I've sung them a few times over the last <laughs> couple of months. <laughs> well, that's all the time we have today. I want to thank Kelly and Serene for joining us to discuss COVID-19 and ACHP's efforts to provide pharmacists with the most up-to-date lessons learned and resources. I'm going to share some of these resources with our listeners now. Be sure to check out ACHP's COVID-19 Resource Center found at ACHP.org, which serves as a clearinghouse for more information on COVID-19 for pharmacy leaders, clinicians, and resources for patients. ACHP has developed policy recommendations for policymakers. Ask your legislators to support ACHP's COVID-19 recommendations by sending an email using the online advocacy center at advocate.ashp.org. Be kind to your mind. Headspace is now the exclusive meditation mindfulness app for ACHP members. With Headspace, you can learn the life-changing skills of meditation and mindfulness in just a few minutes a day. Studies show that meditation helps reduce stress and burnout in our healthcare professionals while boosting happiness, compassion, resilience, and overall life satisfaction. You can find your access to Headspace on the ASHP website by searching for Headspace within the search bar.
If you haven't already, please be sure to subscribe to ACHP's podcast as well as providing more lessons learned, practice, and resources for therapeutic management of COVID-19. I'm Vicki Basilica, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.